0: Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham.
1: We do welcome you to this week's edition of the podcast. Rabbi Lippman, my friend, good afternoon and great to speak with you now.
2: Good afternoon. Always a blessing to talk with you, Pastor.
1: Let's talk about this week's Torah portion. It's a Difficult passage to interpret and really difficult to apply to a modern culture. We are walking through the Torah, the books of Moses, as the weekly Torah portion, and we're still in the book of Deuteronomy, and we called this, the by the Greek name, Deuteronomos, the second law, and we'll remind the listeners that the people of Israel are soon to enter the promised land, and Moses is giving the instructions to the people how you are to live a godly life, a biblical life, whence. When you get into the promised land and you settle down, you're no longer wandering in the desert, but you are experiencing the inheritance that you were promised by the Lord. And so we are in Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 10 until chapter 25, verse 19. This week's Torah portion is called Ki Tetzei. And that has the meaning of when you go. It's the first three verses of Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord, your God delivers you into your hands and you take them captive and see among the captives, a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as your wife. Then you shall bring her to your home. She shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall remove the clothes of her captivity and remain in her house and mourn her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be that if you are not pleased with her, he, you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. So we're going to deal with a lot of topics today in this portion that are ancient in their meanings, and they may not have direct application to our world today, but we've got to figure out what biblical principles there are that we can apply to today's walk with the Lord. And here we have the idea of the Israelites conquering a group of people and taking captives, which is something that we're not involved in. And then you have this woman that in normal military circumstances in that day and time would have been treated very, very poorly, raped or murdered, and here show her respect. So it's all of this, I believe, has the teaching of the value of human life and the value of respect for others. But each of these sections have a different lesson to be taught. So start there for us, Rabbi.
2: I think uh, the way to look at a story like this, and I think you really, uh, you really uh, touched on this, is to put it into perspective of what things were like, especially at the time that the Torah was actually given. This was a time when soldiers would go to war, and be vicious, uh, just do whatever they wanted to do, especially uh, with women and just uh, abuse them in any way which they wanted and mistreat them. And, Well, on the one hand, you would hope that the Jewish soldiers wouldn't be anywhere near that realm and would never even consider uh, going after any of these women. But God understands the human nature that he made us with, and he understands the situation of war. And he doesn't want to just come out, especially in that time, in that culture, and say, no, you cannot uh, in any way uh, have a relationship with that woman but he does put into effect rules. And those rules include uh, the woman uh, certainly has to join uh, together with the Jewish camp. She has to mourn over the loss of her her family. And then the only way he's allowed to have a relationship with her is if he marries her. There is no such thing as, I'm gonna take a woman and, and, and use her as I choose, or whatever other words it could be applicable to the way women were certainly treated at that time, he must marry her. And if he doesn't want to marry her, that's the key point over here, and this for me is the, the most important verse in the section, in verse 14, he can't sell her, he can't abuse her, He can't mistreat her. He just has to let her go. And that's where you see God bringing it back to the values that he wants the people to live with. He allows for certain norms of the time, but never for the mistreatment of another human being. And that's how it has to end. Either marry the person, in which case you have all the responsibilities uh, towards a wife, or let her go free.
1: The next section, and there's just a series of teachings of different moral quandaries, and the next section is starting in 21, verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one who is loved and the one who is unloved, and both of them bear him sons, if the firstborn belongs to the unloved one, the man is supposed to treat him as the firstborn with the double portion and the rights that he is entitled to. Now, we're reading Deuteronomy 21, but we've also become aware of Genesis chapter one and chapter two when God created Adam and Eve and God's design was one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. So monogamy, as the term is, is God's design. This is talking about polygamy and polygamy is mentioned in the scriptures, but it's never taught as an ideal it's never endorsed in the scripture so it's talking about something that happened but not something that the lord intended to happen and not only that
2: again it's a continuation of what i was talking about before marrying multiple wives was the norm the norm at the time certainly in that culture and god allows for it as you said pastor he doesn't say the beginning of the bible that's what should be he allows for it but a few points marrying multiple wives was the norm Therefore, God allows for it. He can't take this people who are just uh, steeped in Egyptian culture and all of a sudden thrust them into a whole new existence. But the Bible makes it very clear over and over again what God feels about it, both in the beginning of the Torah in Genesis, but also in every story where we see that a man has more than one wife, whether it's Abraham with Hagar and Sarah, whether it's Jacob with uh, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Uh, whether it's later on in the Bible with King Solomon, with King David, it never works. It never, ever works. The Hebrew word for a second wife, you'll get a kick out of this, is tsara, which means trouble. That is the actual word for a second wife, is trouble. And in this portion as well, it says when a man has two wives, One is loved, one is hated. That's not hypothetical. That's basically telling us that is what will happen, and it gives us some laws related to it, but it makes a very clear message regarding what the
1: ideal should be. We continue on in the next section, and it's another difficult one to apply to a modern culture. Verse 18, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey his father or mother. When they chastise him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of the city in the gates, in his hometown, and they shall say to the elders of the city, the son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death. So, You shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Now we know the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, we've talked about it on this podcast, is a moral code established by the Lord because a man or a woman on earth showing obedience to their earthly parents is a way to learn how to show obedience and respect to the heavenly father. And so when you are disobedient to your parents on earth, you have more than likely also been disobedient to the Heavenly Father because there's a connection between the two. And so this is a warning against that sin, but it's also an extreme punishment. And I think we need to remind ourselves we're not talking about normal teenager stuff here. This is continuous disobedience, disrespect, rebellion. This is a serious offense, not normal teenager stuff but still a very harsh punishment for our culture to understand you stole my thunder because i was about to
2: tell all the listeners that if their children don't listen to them today now they know what to do (laughs) uh in order to uh but you're correct it's not a normal situation the talmud goes into great great detail regarding what precisely this is talking about we are talking about somebody who is robbing, who is cheating, who is on a path towards becoming a murderer. And the idea is, let's let's prevent him from reaching that place. The Talmud says this never happened and never will happen. That it's just a a, a theoretical, hypothetical type of teaching to give us a sense for, first of all, we as parents, how dedicated we should be to raising our children to act properly. But especially those last, last words uh, in the section, where it says in verse 21, and all of Israel should hear and fear. And the idea was that children would learn this and children would realize, you know, we don't want to reach a point where we're this way and hopefully improve their behavior, especially towards uh, their parents. But in no way was this something which actually took place or will it ever take place. But still an important lesson in terms of how we act, and especially as you go through the Talmud uh, in tract Hedron and you see exactly what kind of behaviors It's talking about a gluttonous behavior, um, uh, someone who's drawn after money, uh, lots of values that we're taught to stay away from that we can learn from the story as well.
1: And the last two verses of chapter 21 may have significance for our Christian audience. It says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. The one who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament makes a connection between this and the hanging of Jesus on the cross. And Christians believe that Jesus was hanging on the cross to pay the penalty of other people's sin, not his own. But the being accursed of God is part of what we believe that Jesus was the Passover lamb or the substitutionary atonement, as the theological term is. And he was hanged on a tree, i.e. a cross made of wood, and was buried the same day, the day that Christians call Good Friday. So there is a connection there for the Christian audience that comes from this teaching here in Deuteronomy 21. And now we get into chapter 22 and... It's still an idea of how to live a godly life in a culture, but we're not talking so much about moral things. In this first section of 22, we're talking about taking care of your friend's stuff. If his ox or his sheep goes away, you find them, you round them up, you keep them at your house until they come and collect them. And Rabbi, I don't know how much this happened in Silver Spring, Maryland, but it happens quite a lot in Melissa, Texas, that horses and cows get out, and this is what you do for your friends. But here's the
2: beauty. First of all, uh, I was guilty last night of saying this
1: is not relevant
2: in the way it's described today. So I have to go take that back next week when I go back to that class and, and tell them uh, that it still does apply in certain places. But it's certainly relevant to any society, to any place. The idea is it's human nature. I think we've all experienced it. You're walking down the street. You're in a rush to get somewhere. You see something on the side, someone clearly lost, and you have that moment of decision. Do I pause and stop from what I'm doing and take the few seconds to take it, make sure that I get it back to the right person, uh, or do I literally pretend like I don't see it? That's the terminology the Bible uses, right? You you hide yourself from it, so to speak, in verse 1, and it's telling us very clearly this mandate of take care of other people's things. We all know there's no greater joy when we lose something if somebody returns it. And therefore, we have to do this here And as any item. It starts off with the larger items, the oxen and the sheep, goes on and moves its way towards donkeys and to clothing. And then it says to anything. It could be a pen. It could be a nickel. It could be anything that somebody has lost. To always be a person who's looking out to help someone else, uh, it's an act of kindness which takes so little effort uh, and can make such a big difference in a person's life.
1: And it's a rather sad commentary on our culture today when you watch a local news program and they make this huge deal that someone found a lost wallet with a bunch of cash in it and they return it to the owner with all the cash in it. And the news makes this big deal about, wow, we found an honest person when it shouldn't be the exception. It shouldn't be a surprise when you find something that belongs to someone else, you return it to them.
2: Absolutely. And I I think... (laughs) You hit it on the head, but I think Moses also understood what human nature was like. And you see how much detail he gives. The Talmud goes into even more detail about how you go about returning it, putting up a sign, people having to come and and, and identify it. It's a real process uh, and and something which which should be part of your human nature. and, and, And hopefully we raise our families and we inspire people around us. Uh, to live their lives in this way and to make sure that they're always on the lookout to help others.
1: Now we get to Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. It's a one-sentence section, but it applies to what America is dealing with, and Israel has similar moral struggles. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And we have the whole transgender movement that is trying to normalize this in America and other countries around the world. It's just my lifestyle. It's just the way I am. And yet the scripture is It's very clear here that God created us male or female, and to say that we are not what he made us to be is to say the Lord made a mistake, he messed up, I'm not happy or satisfied in how the Lord made me. And so it's very clear here in a short section the trouble that our culture is facing is because it's not following God's design.
2: Yeah, and and, people ask very often about this particular section, you know, how do you define men's clothing, women's clothing, right? There certainly was a time where, uh, let's say, in society, women weren't wearing pants, and now women do wear pants. And therefore, obviously, things change and fluctuate. But the idea that there are things that are designated for men, and things that are designated for women, and each one should wear and be involved with the things that are designated for them, uh, that's something which extends to all generations
1: for sure. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. It talks about you come upon a bird's nest. You're to leave the mother, but you can take the young so you can provide for more food in the future. And so this is a very simple instruction. Verse 8, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. So the Lord is talking about the most basic of daily situations How to be godly, how to be kind, how to respect life in the different circumstances that we encounter.
2: Absolutely. This is a major, major theme, both in this week's portion and in general, about kindness to live beings, kindness to God's creations, not being brutal and not uh, causing unnecessary suffering. And while in this particular case, you know, people think to themselves, what's a bird? Does a bird really care? And God is kind of saying, yes, uh, there's a way to go about things. And the promise that you're given, this is very interesting, in verse 7, where it uses the terminology, it'll be good for you, and you'll have long life. Now, I'm not going to get into right now the issue of, is it saying long life? There are certainly people who have been kind to animals who didn't live a long life. Uh, But there's another place where the same terminology is used, and that is with respecting our parents. That same terminology is used. And what's fascinating is you think to yourself, what's the connection between the two? And the commentaries talk about if you raise a family where, first of all, you are kind to your parents and your children see that, that's number one. And number two, if you raise a family where they see that you're kind to every live being, even animals, the kind of children that you raise will be different. You will have a good life and it will be a healthier life uh, for sure. Uh, It's just an automatic result of being in an environment like this.
1: We get into the next part of Deuteronomy chapter 22, and there's a teaching we need from the rabbi about mixing things. You're not to sow your vineyard with two kinds of seeds. In verse 9, you're not to plow. In verse 10, with an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, you're not to wear a material mixed with wool and linen together. These don't seem to go together. What's the some teaching of this? There's no doubt that at a base level,
2: we can analyze each one of them individually. But there's an idea of God created the world in a certain way. God created the world uh, with a certain order. There's no place for us to be mixing things and and trying to do our own uh, things in creation. But having said that, each individual one has its lesson. For example, in verse 10, when it says not to have the ox and the donkey work together, that goes back to this principle I was talking about before of care for animals. Uh, There are two explanations given in the commentaries for that. One is the ox is certainly much stronger, and trying to work together with the donkey it will cause torture for the donkey as it tries to keep up with the ox. The other one is that the ox chews its cud. So the, 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 the farmer will feed the animals, and then a few hours later, the ox will bring up its food once again, and the donkey will look over and see him chewing and will feel pain over the fact that it doesn't have food. So that's a specific reason in that case. Uh, where we're told uh, not to happen together. So each one individually can have its reason as well.
1: Now we move to the next part of chapter 22, another short verse. Verse 12, Make for yourselves tassels on the four corners of your garment with which to cover yourself. And there's no explanation for that. Now, back in Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel, and this is now verse 38. Tell them that thou shalt make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. So not much explanation in Deuteronomy 22, much more so in Deuteronomy 15. But Rabbi, we're talking about tzitzit, these strings or cords on the edge of your robes that you and your sons and and orthodox jewish men wear so what is the teaching not only for you as the wearer but it's also seen by others what are people supposed to see when they see you wearing your tzitzit so interestingly enough
2: it there's a lot of symbolism involved with it and i could talk about them in a moment but the most basic idea is just like a person used to put a string around their finger uh, to remember something. We want to have a constant reminder uh, of God and, and, and following his commandments. Uh, there's all kinds of symbolism. So for example, in terms of the numbers of strings and uh, the numbers of knots, uh, they equal various, uh, have numerical values that relate to the observance of commandments and remembering God. So there's all kinds of hidden meanings. Remember also In the ideal situation, you have the blue string also called techelet, which has come back in our times. And that's supposed to ultimately bring a person to think about the sky, think about God. And anybody who sees them uh, should be thinking about that as well. It's a constant reminder uh, to be obedient and to not stray, as it says in our earlier places, after our eyes and after things that pull us away from the spirituality.
1: And I don't know if I've told you, Rabbi Lippmann, that our friend, Rabbi Jeremy Gimpel, he teaches Christians about tzitzit, and he calls them the original WWJD bracelet. The what would Jesus do bracelet. He said this was the original, what would God have me to do? WWJD bracelet is how he describes tzitzit.
2: Yeah, and it becomes a part of your life, daily life. It's part of the clothing that we wear and uh, we actually have to work to make sure that it reminds us of what it's supposed to remind us of instead of uh, letting it be something which just becomes part of our
1: nature and not something that's significant. And what I find interesting is the combination of topics in this portion. So here we are in Deuteronomy 22. We talked about taking care of the birds and the donkey and the ox. Don't have to work together and don't have mixed seeds in your vineyard and now you're going to have these tassels on the corners of your garments and now we get to verse 13 and we jump into if a man takes his wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says I took this woman but when I came near to her I did not find her a virgin so we've got serious moral dilemmas and marriage codes and what to do in these circumstances Mixed in with these simple daily life tasks of seeds in your vineyard,
2: I think that uh, it plays a few roles. First of all, uh, I find it interesting that in a portion which is talking about going out to war and talking about very difficult, uh, stoning a son, difficult situations that are uh, could lead one to conclude that there's a lot of violence uh within our faith uh it's mixed with these beautiful beautiful teachings about the kindness that we're supposed to have and i think it's supposed to have that kind of a message even here as well you have this difficult situation where the person is saying you know i thought i was marrying someone who's a virgin and she's not and they have to be checked and there's penalties it seems to be a very dirty uh, uh almost not appropriate scene to have in the torah uh, and maybe can lead a person to think negatively about the Bible and the Torah, but these are realities. There are real situations that would come up when a person expected one thing and they got something else, and there has to be a mechanism to deal with it. And That's what we have right over here.
1: 22-22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And I'll, I I want to hear your commentary on that, and I'll connect it to a New Testament verse, but... This is, again, like the stoning to death of the disobedient child. This is the death penalty for adultery for both the man and the woman. Serious consequences for breaking the moral codes of God and letting that immorality spread throughout the land of Israel.
2: Yes, and and a few things that I want to point out. One is that whenever it talks about capital punishment, uh, this is critical for everyone to understand because the Torah repeats over and over again. In this case, they're stoned. In this case, they're killed. Uh, It was almost impossible for that to actually be capital punishment because the mechanism that was set up was that in order for the Jewish court to actually kill someone for violating any of these sins, two witnesses had to come to the person within a few seconds of them doing the act they have to say to them, "If you do this act, we will go to court and have you killed." And the person has to say has to acknowledge it and say, "Yes, I understand that, and I'm doing it anyway." The chance of that happening, you're talking about someone who is suicidal, essentially, is, is close to none, and the Talmud even talks about how rare it was for it to actually happen. So it's more significant, though, to teach us how serious the sin actually is, that this is something which, in the right scenarios, It would be liable for being killed by the Jewish court. And that's an important thing for us to learn, uh, to get a sense for the seriousness of the sins and the seriousness in this case of trying to keep the land of Israel especially pure uh, when it comes to the morality and the values of the people who live there.
1: Verse 22 talks about the man and the woman involved in the adulterous relationship is to receive punishment. And that's why the story of John chapter 8 is so important when Jesus is confronted by the religious scholars of his day who are trying to have him make a moral decision and they bring a woman caught in adultery to jesus for judgment in john chapter 8 they don't bring the man they bring only the woman which is a problem if you're using this deuteronomy 22:22 as the source and this is when jesus shows great compassion on the woman and rabbi you might even be familiar with the famous phrase jesus says let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's what Jesus said in John 8, verse 7. And that story that is so famous in the Gospel of John is related to this passage here in Deuteronomy 22. And it reminds all of us that we are all sinful before the Lord. And while this sinful act might be different than your sinful act, we all are in need of forgiveness from God
2: such a critical uh, point to remember. Uh, the idea here is not to be judging others, but to be focusing on ourselves and what we can do to make ourselves better. Uh, you do want to learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, you know, Going back before when we talked about hanging up the person uh, who was killed so that people can learn from it, uh, but it's not to see them and judge them, it's to see them and gain inspiration for ourselves.
1: We have more teachings at the end of chapter 22 about the sexual morality and the holiness that god has called people to live to and the standards that he wants us to live by and now we get to chapter 23 and we're talking about a eunuch a man who has been emasculated and then it says he shall not enter the assembly of the lord and then in verse two of chapter 23 no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the lord Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so, first of all, what does it mean to enter the assembly of the Lord? Next question is, why are these people in these circumstances singled out? So uh,
2: entering the the congregation uh, is talking about marriage. Who's allowed to marry uh, within the Jewish faith? And it's difficult for us to understand some of these rules and why certain things here Uh, why people are not allowed uh, to be uh, in the Jewish faith, and why especially things where uh, somebody was born in a certain way. How do you hold it against them? that They were born in a certain way. Uh, But there is an idea of uh, people coming to the camp, first and foremost, that have spiritual uh, purity. And certainly in verse 3, when you talk about the child that was born out of impurity, uh, we want to uh, avoid having that, the spiritual realities in our midst. And there are also other uh, deformities or things which a person is not capable of having children, not capable of procreating. And the whole purpose of marriage is for the sake of having children. So that's where some of these commands uh, come from. So the most important thing is to take the message uh, from them in terms of the goal of having a family, the goal of having spiritual purity. And those are the things that we can take from it in our time.
1: Chapter 23, verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And that is because we've read in earlier portions, this group of people did not show kindness or cooperation with the people of Israel as they made their travels. But this distinction or rejection of the Moabites is in opposition to the very famous story of Ruth, the Moabitess, who was married to Boaz and became an ancestor of King David and an ancestor, according to the Gospels, of Jesus himself. So how does Ruth fit into this section? So there's a fascinating, fascinating discussion about this issue,
2: and it basically comes down to, in verse 4, when it says, and Ammoni and Moavi, that's in the masculine. Uh, If it was feminine, it would be "Ammonit" or moavit. And they say that the men are the ones who are not allowed to join uh, the Jewish people, but the females are allowed to. it. it goes back to uh, what they're being held accountable for, for not bringing you bread and water uh, as you were traveling through. These were things that men uh, were supposed to do, and women were not held accountable for not doing. Uh, you know, all the negative spiritual traits which they have were shown by the men, and therefore the women can, and therefore Ruth is a prime example of a person who comes from the Moabite faith but as a female, and therefore not only is she allowed to join the Jewish people, but she is the, as you said, the great-grandmother of King David himself.
1: And you said the assembly of the Lord is talking about marriage. That's not talking about a worship service or the mishkan, the tabernacle?
2: That's correct. It's talking about can they be accepted into the people of Israel via marriage? Can they marry within the faith?
1: All right, as we continue through Deuteronomy 23, it talks about different moral issues again. You get to verse 17, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute, You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord. You shall be holy and righteous morally. But then the next verse, number 19, do not charge interest to your countrymen. Do not charge interest on money or food or anything that may be loaned, but you can charge interest to a foreigner, verse 20. It seems unusual, Rabbi, that we're comparing cult prostitution, pagan sexual practices, and now taking a loan and charging interest? Very difficult to see the flow. Now,
2: remember, uh, there doesn't have to be a direct connection uh, between the two. There's a reality that Moses is teaching a lot of laws in this portion, and there are going to have to be some that are next to each other without a full explanation. But again, I think that, uh, let's say the charging interest, for example, uh, that's a behavior which is horrific. Somebody is in need, and you have the ability to help them and you take advantage of their situation and you only loan them the money if they give you interest, if they pay interest on it, uh, that's also, I'll use the term, an abomination uh, to the Lord, to take advantage of someone in that situation. So abominations can come in all forms. It can come in bringing the wrong offerings in the temple. It can come uh, in the form of human behavior of moral depravity, and it can come in uh, not treating others properly as well.
1: Well, I assume, Rabbi, that somewhere along the way you've had a mortgage on your house in Israel and you have to pay interest on that bank loan. So is this principle still in effect today?
2: When they establish the state of Israel and realize that you have to have a banking system with loans and with mortgages, uh, there's a creative solution that I'll call it, which we don't have enough time to get into, called a heter iska where it frames it as a business deal instead of a loan to someone who's in need, and therefore there's a way uh, around it. But it wasn't simple, and there have to be solutions put into place for us to be able to have a functional society.
1: Also at the end of chapter 23, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. This is the idea of not lying to God, not being flippant with our words. And when we make a promise to the Lord, we keep it. Exactly right. And this is not just a promise
2: to the Lord, but it certainly is taught in that context uh, over here. The words that we say, the promises that we make, uh, have tremendous significance. And th- th- there's a few verses here where it, where it concludes in verse 24 where it says, Whatever you say from your lips, guard and do. Keep to it. You must fulfill your vows. When we start uh, the Yom kippur service at nighttime, everyone comes to synagogue or temple. It's full. It's the most meaningful night of the year. And you'd think that we'd start off with a prayer about atonement, some kind of a prayer about the glory of God. The first thing we do is called Kol Nidre. There's a movie called The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond where this is featured. Everyone sings it with the same tune. It's a very solemn prayer. And Kol Nidre is nullifying our vows, saying if we promised something and we didn't keep to it, we as a group are nullifying them and we're starting new. That's how important a person's word is. That's how important it is to God that we keep to our promises.
1: As we get into Deuteronomy 24, the idea of keeping promises to the Lord, I think there's a connection here to keeping a promise to your spouse because this is talking about what constitutes a Permissible divorce, according to this Old Testament passage. And so, when it talks about the first four verses about taking a wife and it happens, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some undecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. What is the teaching here? What is the lesson on not what God's preference is, divorce, but what God allows here?
2: God is allowing for the scenario that people get married and Uh, They realize that it's not meant to be and it's not working out. But because of the fact that marriage is a spiritual bond, uh, we use the terminology of Kiddushin, which brings in the word Kiddushin. There's a holiness there. There's something real that took place. It can't just be that you just part ways with each other. There's an actual ceremony that has to take place with something which is written, and it's done in a a variety of laws related to it, and it has to be done according to the ritual practice. The same way there's a ritual to enter the marriage, a spiritual ritual, there has to be a spiritual uh, ceremony to break that bond. And that's an important lesson. Yes, it's obviously teaching you the way out, but it's also teaching you the significance of what happens when you're on the way in.
1: As we continue to look at different passages in this week's Torah portion, we're in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, and a very interesting short verse, number 6. No one shall take a handmill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. And to the modern reader this might sound very strange. I'll remind the listeners that millstones were used every day in your house to grind grain, to prepare food. And so basically, if you take a millstone as collateral for a debt. You're depriving a person of the ability to eat their daily bread, which contradicts the idea of generosity. So it really takes an understanding of ancient lifestyle to understand why in the world is a millstone, a problem in a loan arrangement.
2: Absolutely. And again, you put it into that context. So in today's world, you could think of anything which is of significance when a person is in desperation, make sure that you do everything to make it easier for them and in no way uh, make it harder on them. But I wanna emphasize one other thing. That terminology at the end, that you're wounding or hurting a soul, is the last word of the section which also included, when a man marries a woman in verse five, he should not go to the army, he should be home with her during the first year. Those, that verse five and verse six work together say that you're hurting a soul also goes on separating a husband and wife during that first year again reminding us of the significance of that bond on a spiritual level between two people that come together you don't want to break that bond between them either
1: and i like what you said earlier that there's a whole series of teachings that moses is giving to the people and they seem strange when they're placed right next to each other but he has to get the teachings out somewhere so there may not be a direct connection and it's sort of interesting here in chapter 24 you've got the section on divorce then a new wife then taking a hand mill or a millstone in a pledge and then don't uh be a kidnapper and then be careful against leprosy and then we're back in verse 10 to taking loans again what a strange connection of all these different topics
2: Yes. And again, it's so hard to find the flow and to make to all the connections uh, come together and also to understand maybe Moses was deliberately going back and forth from sort of more serious, intense issues to lighter issues, maybe it's too much uh, to have all of that at once. It's difficult to understand, but certainly everyone is free to read the portion to try to figure out how they can bring those
1: connections together. Another passage here is 24 verse 14 and 15 about giving a person their wages and there's the idea that a rich person can hire a poor person and show great control over them by disrespecting them and hiring them for a job and then refusing to pay their wages so You can be the wealthier person. There's nothing sinful against that if you've been successful in business, but you're not to take advantage of others who are less wealthy than you are.
2: That's exactly right. And the idea also is to remember that the blessings that you have... Our blessings ultimately for you to share with others. Uh, God is the one who has given it to you. We've talked about this in past weeks. The gifts that you have are gifts from God, so use them in a godly manner. And we live in a world where you do have a huge gap. Uh, certainly in Israel we have this issue from the very wealthy to people who are so impoverished. And what a different world it would be if people would realize that ultimately the goal is to share and to help others. Yes, of course, you can make sure that you have for your children afterwards. Although there are commentaries on this week's portion that say no, don't even uh, hold back funds that you have or things for your children. Make sure that you give away all the blessing in your life lifetime so that you can uh, grow spiritually from it and God will take care of your children in the merit of that charity that you give and the help that you give. But either way it's repeated over and over again. You see how that relationship is supposed to work and never taking advantage of someone, making sure that you pay someone on time, making sure that, that they need help, that you're there to help them and not making things more difficult for them.
1: And when we get to the end of chapter 24 starting in verse 19, when you reap in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the alien or the orphan or the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, do not go over the boughs again. When you gather the grapes, verse 21, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien or the orphan or the widow. You shall remember, verse 22, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And so this is another foreshadowing of the later story of the book of Ruth, because we mentioned Ruth ruth the moabitess but this is how she was able to eat we call it the gleaning of the field you were supposed to do your gathering of your crops but you didn't go all the way to the edges and you didn't go back if you missed anything because whatever you left behind the poorer people were allowed it wasn't considered stealing they were allowed to come in and pick up the leftovers and it's
2: all part of that kindness to recognize that people who don't have of their own and leave that for them. And that verse 22 really captures it. You yourselves were slaves. You know what it's like uh, to have nothing. You know what it's like to be so dependent. Go out of your way to be kind and giving to others uh, based on what your experience was in Egypt.
1: So now we come to the last chapter of this week's portion, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it begins with, if there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge decides their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more. Lest he beat him with more stripes than these and your bro- brother be degraded in your eyes. What is the teaching here about we should be forgiving and kind to one another, yet at the same time, I can take you to court and have you beaten? Yeah,
2: this is, uh, you know, there are realities, and this is exactly that contrast that I was talking about before. Uh, on the one hand, beautiful, kindness, loving towards others. But God also recognizes the reality that there are people who don't get along with each other, and there has to be a mechanism in place to deal with that. And that's where you have courts, and that's where you have punishments. I will remind the listeners that even in the case of the lashes, it also has to be with two witnesses giving the warning right before he does the act, and he has to acknowledge that he'll take that punishment for doing the act. So it's uncommon. it to happen. There's all kinds of rules in place to make sure that the person won't certainly not die uh, during getting the lashes and there's limits to how much you can actually uh, whip a person in this scenario. But that again is that contrast of trying to create a beautiful society where everyone is kind to each other but also recognizing that it's not always going to be the case and there has to be a mechanism to deal with that.
1: And we get into this last section of the portion, which concludes in 25, verse 10. And this section starts in 25, verse 5. title for this topic is called Leverite Marriage. And the idea is when a man marries a woman and then the man dies, the woman is left a widow, and so her Aloneness would have caused her financial difficulty and sadness, and maybe not having any children to carry on the generations. So, the deceased man's brother is to take her as his wife and continue the family line that way. Talk about this idea, please. The idea
2: is that there has to be a continuity. Uh, you do want, if somebody passes away without children, for there to be. Uh, a mechanism in place for his name to continue and to make sure that also his wife, uh, his widow, uh, is taken care of. So it's Hebrew, it's called yibum, uh, where they're brought together. They're not forced to. They do have a, a ceremony they have to do if they do not want to have that marriage. But the idea, again, relates to people looking out for each other, both for the deceased brother and for the widow, making sure that people are taken care of, making sure there's continuity. There's a loving kindness here beneath something which seems so foreign to us in our culture.
1: And again, another connection to the Ruth story, because Boaz is called the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz took Ruth as his wife, but Boaz was not the closest relative, so it went down the line. Does the closest relative want to take Ruth? No. Does the next one know? Does the next one know? And finally it gets to... Boaz, who was the distant relative, and he takes her. So we have another connection to the Ruth story.
2: Absolutely connection, and that's a lot of the uh, laws that we learn about this scenario are actually taken from that story in the prophets. We find that often that the Torah itself and the five books of Moses doesn't give us a lot of detail, but you're able to learn a lot more from stories where people were actually carrying out these commands as it goes to the prophets uh, and the writings in the later part of the Bible.
1: And we do come to the last portion, which ends at the end of chapter 25. It starts in verse 11. If two men, a man and his countrymen are struggling together and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. Rabbi, what are we talking about here?
2: Oh, you really just threw that right on me, right? Come on, Pastor. You're supposed to be <laughs> teaching the teaching the masses. This is your opportunity to shine. Um, it's a difficult, uh, verses to understand, you know, exactly why this is happening and why the Bible gets into this kind of uh, kind of detailed. The idea, though, is without a doubt, is uh, the lesson of embarrassing other people. The idea of there has to be consequences uh, for, for creating that embarrassment uh, for other people to learn how to settle disputes without getting into uh, improper, or inappropriate situations. Uh, those are the things that I take it from. It, you know, we, we were just told before, if there's a dispute between people, go to the Jewish court. There's a way to take care of it. And here you have people who are trying to settle it for themselves, and you see the devastating consequences that it can have.
1: Well, to be fair, since you taught that section, I'll be glad to teach the next section, which is (laughs) Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 13, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small, (laughs) and since it's my turn to teach the section, I'll do this one, which is... Don't be dishonest. Don't switch around. If you would weigh out a a pound's worth of grain or of salt or of gold or anything else, don't be dishonest and switch around the measurements to be advantageous for you and steal from another person. Be an honest business person. So there's your teaching for that section.
2: First of all, that was brilliant how you tackled that uh, challenging (laughs) uh, few verses over here. Uh, I do want to make one point, though, from this, because this is actually uh, quite significant. In verse 16, uh, when it sums up that section of having honest weights and being honest in business, it uses the terminology of abomination, toevah. The same word which is used often when it comes to sexual immorality is used here as well, and that, that should be quite startling uh, to realize that I mean, God is demanding truth and honesty in business. We have a tradition that the first question a person is asked when they pass away from God is, were they honest in their business? That's so important uh, to God, and he calls it an abomination. There's, a, there's a, the same terminology, that, and we're so uh, loud and vocal When it comes to uh, immorality issues, uh, we have to be that vocal and demanding when it comes to uh, how people deal with one another in business as well.
1: And we'll finish this week's Torah portion as we finish chapter 25 and talk about Amalek and the Amalekites. And it says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, verse 17, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget a very strong command, and we know this doesn't happen. David has to defeat the Amalekites in 2 Samuel chapter 1. They were not completely wiped out until 300 years later in Hezekiah's day, says 1 Chronicles chapter 4. So why the emphasis and the importance of defeating the Amalekites?
2: Amalek is the symbol of the... A heresy and anti-God movement in the world. Uh, they were the ones who, after Israel left the desert and the world recognized the greatness of God and the miracles and something special is happening over here, they were the first to attack people of Israel, taking advantage of them when they were in a difficult place and tired from the, uh, from the walking in the desert and their experiences. Uh, they represent uh, the anti-God element of the world, and we want no remembrance of them. They must be obliterated. This is a, you know, we we as a faith uh, get along with other faiths. We don't believe in proselytizing. We're not into missionary work. We want to see a monotheistic world. We do destroy idols, but when it comes to those who are totally anti-God, totally anti-spirituality, that's something which has to be uh, defeated and hopefully removed from the world. In today's world, we can accomplish that by trying to be inspiring, by trying to be an example of spirituality and hopefully motivate people in that way Uh, to jump on board and and be part of a spiritual life uh, instead of a life devoid of any
1: spirituality. So we have finished a difficult and complicated teaching. Ki Tetzay is the term in Hebrew, and it comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 10, until 25, verse 19. And Rabbi, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of differing and seemingly unrelated topics back to back. Wrap it up for us today.
2: Boy, you can really go back and forth, like I said. That I think that the most the best way I could say it is the Torah and God in the Bible uh, teach us how to live our lives in every single aspect, whether it's war, whether it's marriage, whether it's failed marriage, whether it's Uh, other difficult situations related to immorality, whether it's how to take care of the needy, whether it's how to uh, 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 go find things for people who lose them. Whatever it is, in every situation, there is a code which tells us how to act. And now our responsibility is to actually study it, to study it, to make it a part of our lives, uh, to make sure that we understand what God wants from us, not leave it to our own minds to say, uh, maybe I'll do it this way, maybe I'll do it that way. Uh, But to recognize that it's all covered here, and we just have to make sure uh, that we study the Bible, we review the Bible, and that's what we do when we do this on a weekly basis, uh, and we come back year after year to study it. This, This portion has 74 out of the 613 commandments. 74, it's more than a tenth of the commandments that we have. There's a lot here, and that's why we have to constantly review it, constantly study it, plumb the depths of it, understand it, and apply it to our lives.
1: I think that's an excellent summary, and I would add to that, we need to learn the heart and the character of God. He does not change. The God of Deuteronomy is the God of 2018. His nature, his character, his kindness, his mercy, his righteousness, his judgment are the same. How do we take the teachings and principles from Deuteronomy and apply them to today's world? That's the challenge of living a godly life in this modern context.
2: Absolutely, and every single thing that's taught here can be applied. Uh, We just have to sit back and think about it and uh, figure out how to put it into our lives and make it as practical as possible.
1: Rabbi, wonderful to study the Word of God with you today. I always enjoy it. Shabbat Shalom.
0: Shabbat Shalom.
2: Blessings
1: to all.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to Himself this week.